say something. Oh, are you recording I'm now? I'm recording. You're here with WKRP in Cincinnati. <laughs> Roll that intro. The nagging. Naturalist. It's the Nagging Naturalist podcast. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Nagging Naturalist podcast, a podcast all about wildlife. I'm your host, Kristen, and I'm a naturalist by trade, and today I am joined by my partner, Barry, who will be my student? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I will be interjecting. (laughs) He's the person that doesn't know anything about the animal we're talking about. I'm the person that does. But before we get into that, just to get these things out of the way... My opinions are my own, and I do not speak for on behalf of any organization, facility, or institute that is mentioned in my podcast. This month, we are covering species found along the sandy seafloor of the Monterey Bay Continental Shelf, and today we will be discussing the Pacific Sand Dollar, also known as the Eccentric Sand Dollar. We'll get to that later. They are also known by many other common names, such as sea cookies, sand cakes, cake urchins, Sea biscuits and pansy shells. Barry, have you ever seen a sand dollar? Yeah, I've, I've uh, collected them on the beach and so forth. I've seen some live ones too, which look very little like what you uh, find on the beach. Yeah, they don't. They don't quite look like the the, the empty shells that you, you find when you're collecting them on the beach. No. So diving into some natural history, we are, of course, in the kingdom Animalia. These are animals. The phylum is a kind of Dermata, the echinoderms, which means spiny skin, basically. The class is Echinoidea. These are the sea urchins. The order is, and I'm probably going to butcher this, Clypisteroidea. Clypisteroidea? It's the order of sand dollars, basically. <laughs> the family is Denterastidae, and the species uh, name, their genus and species, is Denteraster. Eccentricus, the eccentric sand dollar. Uh, so when it comes to their size, their average diameter is about 7.5 to 8 centimeters, which roughly comes out to about 3 inches, and larger specimens may reach over 10 centimeters, or 4 inches. The appearance of these sand dollars is essentially like a squished sea urchin. Not that they squish sea urchins. All right, all right. So earlier we were talking <laughs> about this. And she was saying that, did I know, what would you say exactly? I was just asking you what you knew about sand dollars. Oh, yeah, but you mentioned something about uh, squished sea urchins. Yeah, I said that they are essentially squished sea urchins. That was it. And (laughs) I misheard it and thought she said they squish sea urchins. (laughs) And it's become this whole thing for the last few hours. And I'm not proud of myself, but what are you going to do? Uh, to be fair, if sand dollars came about because sea urchins were squished, that would be uh, be a very violent turn of events for sea urchins. Kind of like Goombas in uh, Super Mario Brothers, like when Mario jumps <laughs> on them and they get flattened. You just do that with sea urchins and they become sand dollars? Yep. Yep, exactly. <laughs> that works. <laughs> the sea Goombas. So they are round, disc-like animals with a calcium carbonate shell, which is known as a test. Their test is... Pause for dramatic effect. Somebody's rolling their their trash can out while I'm trying to record, making all kinds of noise. So their test is covered in tiny spines and little hair-like protrusions called cilia. They also have little tube feet, which are these long, flexible tubes that end in suction cups, though they do not use them for locomotion the way other echinoderms like sea stars and sea urchins do. The Pacific sand dollar is usually some kind of a purplish color. It might be more of a reddish purple or grayish purple, somewhere in between, but they can also come in browns, blacks, and grays as well, but you're mostly going to see them in purple. On the underside of the specimens, in the very center of their test, is their mouth. And inside the mouth are five tooth-like plates that are called the Aristotle's lantern. And that essentially helps them tear and chew at food. There is also a hole below the mouth on the animal that you might see on its shell or test. And that is its anus. So that's where it's going to get rid of waste from its digestive tract. 
The reason why the species is called the eccentric sand dollar is because of the iconic flower pattern on the top of its shell. That flower pattern in most, if not all species is in the very center to where with these sand dollars, it is slightly off center. So it's almost like nature did not double check the margins before hitting print. The range of the species is from Southern Alaska all the way down to Baja, California, which is in Mexico. The habitat is typically the sandy seafloor in the low intertidal zones between 1 to 90 meters or 3 to 295 feet, though on average they will be around 40 meters, which is about 130 feet deep. You mentioned that the range of these eccentric sand dollars from the on the Pacific coast is from Alaska down to Baja, California. Now, do you think people in Alaska are going to the beaches and going uh, sand dollar hunting? Like collecting live ones or just the shells? Well, no, I hope that no one that's listening to this is collecting live sand dollars unless you're part of an aquarium or other <laughs> conservation team that is specifically made to to do that. But no, I mean, like most people, I think growing up, no sand dollars as that white round thing that you find on the beach. Yep. And so I'm wondering, since it's generally colder in Alaska, whether they're also going out to the beach and looking for these things, or if maybe the coast isn't as suited to uh, to collecting sand dollars. I guess it depends on how easily. So, you know, I've unfortunately never been to Alaska. And the way that things wash up partially depends on currents. So along parts of the Pacific, there is a natural phenomenon called upwelling that pushes things up and it's usually uh, pushing nutrients towards the surface and it creates really big booms of um, population growth and all kinds of animals. I don't know if upwellings occur in Alaska. I don't know what their tides are like. So, I mean, sure, it's possible that sand dollars might wash up in Alaska, but it part of it also does depend on the natural cycles and processes that happen along their coast and also where the sand dollars are placed on their coast because if the sand dollars are living in the deeper part of the depths that they can reach. They may not be close enough to the coast to actually wash up. So if they're in that 300 foot range, they're pretty far away from the edge of the coast and probably not as likely to wash up. But I don't know if there's anybody from Alaska that wants to speak up and say whether or not they find sand dollars on the coast of the southern parts of Alaska, please feel free to correct me because I've never heard of people finding sand dollars in Alaska. All right. <laughs> I hope that answers your question. Yeah, actually, I was going to tell people that uh, might have lived in Alaska to, to like write in if they had any experience with that. But I mean, you did it so much but, better than I did. But don't write in. I'm not going to give you my address. No, no. I mean, like e <laughs> emails, tweets. You Sorry, know, we've been watching so much Bob Ross, and like when yeah. I think of people writing in, I think of people sending letters, and I'm like, yeah. no, please don't send me a letter. So their diet is omnivorous, and they are also opportunistic scavengers. So they eat algae, detritus, and detritus is decaying matter, plankton, and in particular, larval crustaceans. So that's the younger stage of uh, crabs for the most part. So crab, shrimp, and other things usually start out as small uh, drifting plankton, I forget what the stage right before Zoea is called, but it's probably that stage right before they are Zoea. But they literally like snatch them out of the current with their tube feet. So what's the biggest thing that a sand dollar can eat? Prob probably the larval crustaceans and plankton. So like you've, I don't know if you remember this when I brought home copepods and like a little water dish when we lived in the apartment uh, before this one but I literally brought in like copepods that we had to use one of those magnifying glasses for, for me to be able to see. Although they were technically visible to the naked eye, but we're talking things like as big as a grain of sand because they don't have super big mouths. So this isn't like, you know, an animal with a mouth that it can like stretch open and eat bigger things with. Their mouth is surrounded by a circle that doesn't get bigger. And so literally just whatever fits through that circle is what they can eat. Right. Yeah. I didn't imagine that it would be like a snake where it can like unhinge it to draw and like open up. That would be really terrifying. <laughs> but I also didn't know if maybe they had a mechanism for breaking larger things down or whether it was only what could fit through that hole at a given time. Um, so I, I just was trying to see whether or not we had any hopes of having like maybe a dead fish on the, uh, the floor <laughs> and a whole bunch of sand dollars just like 
going and like covering it and then breaking it down slowly. Well, they do have relatives that can do that. So sea urchins and sea stars can do that to a certain extent. The reason why sea stars can do it so well, though, is they're the ones that can expel their stomachs out of their bodies. These guys can't do that. They're not as far as I know, they can't do it. They're not expelling their stomachs and digesting things outside of their body that is too big to fit into their mouth. Sea stars do that, though. Um, And I believe some sea urchins also can scavenge flesh. And I don't know if part of that is the stomach expelling or if they are better at tearing with their little Aristotle's lantern. But it, even though it, it described them as being able to tear and chew food, and I, I use air quotes for these things because it's not quite the same thing that we do, but I don't know if that means that they can tear at things that are bigger. The impression I had from their diet is it's basically what fits in their mouth. Okay. Tiny stuff. For reproduction, they are broadcast spawners, which means that males and females will release their gametes, so that's sperm for males and eggs for females, out into the water column to hopefully mix and get fertilized. Females may release upwards of 300,000 eggs or more at a time, so lots of babies very quickly at once, assuming they all mix really well. How long does it take for these plankton esque sand dollars to uh to mature and become the ones that we would find on the beach that's a good question i didn't look super hard into their development i know they're mature by four years of age that's when they are sexually mature though but they probably have already been well established as an actual sand dollar with a lot of these animals especially with their short lifespans they very often go through very quick development so i can can take a look at it real quick but my guess would be a year or less you didn't say how did you say how long they live already or you hadn't no, gotten to that I, part? I, haven't, I haven't gotten to that part <laughs> okay well whenever you cut this out and we get to that part i'll <laughs> they settle on the seafloor after six weeks so like a month and a half to two months probably they settle on the seafloor we talking about like the plankton before yeah growing? so no, no no so they hatch out they are plankton when they settle on the seafloor, they're they're settling down and forming into the sand dollar. Okay, so their their entire adolescence is as like planktonic things. That that's that's really common for a lot of invertebrates as they start out in a planktonic stage and then they settle down and basically turn into adults. Yeah. Assuming they're benthic, there are some things that don't settle down. Spend their childhood as drifters and then they just find a place to settle down and and not take root. They're on little suction cups, but um, <laughs> to take suction. Take tube feet. Take tube feet. But yeah, they mature, I think I read that they mature by four years of age, and then their lifespan is estimated to be between, I've read both six to 10 years and six to 15 years. So remember, if you get a live sand dollar, that is a, that is quite a commitment. <laughs> you need to give that thing a forever home. <laughs> oh my God. I've ruined you. But uh, so they, they release these gametes and it's seasonal? Yes. Okay, so at least once a year you can expect a bloom of these gametes oh, to yeah, be... Some nice milky waters. Roll Tide. <laughs> oh man, I'm moving into environmental value now. So this is where we kind of discuss basically some of their ecosystem services. So sand dollars usually burrow or dig into the sand, which is important to the biogeochemical processes of the seafloor. Animals that stir up the sandy bottom where things can settle helps to release resources back into the environment for other animals to take advantage of. And these resources would usually remain settled on or trapped beneath the sand if they hadn't been stirred up, essentially. So animals like these sand dollars living on these sandy and silty uh, habitats can help influence local oxygen, nitrogen, and carbon cycling, mineralization, and sedimentation. And this is a really important aspect of nutrient availability in ecosystems, which can in turn impact biodiversity as well as the density of certain species that rely on this process at least for those that live in benthic habitats, for things that might just be passing through, like, you know, migrating fish or whales, it may not have as much of an impact, but for these much smaller organisms inhabiting what is considered a very harsh environment with a sandy seafloor, it's pretty important to literally stir things up and keep it interesting. 
So if you do find any of these on the beach that are still alive and co covered in their cilia, make sure to chuck them back into the water carefully. Not chuck. <laughs> chuck them in carefully. <laughs> Just I was excited. Those are two different put messages. Them <laughs> softly. Oh no. No. Okay, we're gonna get to this later. I actually give a little bit of instruction that I think is more helpful. We're spitballing here. Than telling people to chuck. My intention is to discuss this later, Barry. You want to discus throw them with ease. <laughs> discus throw. Oh my gosh. Anyway, as an animal that develops a carbon-based shell, they are also uh, part of the process of carbon sequestration, which is an ecosystem role that I had actually mentioned for the red octopus as well. Carbon sequestration is the process of removing carbon from its natural cycles and storing it in a liquid or solid form. Animals that create shells in the ocean, such as, you know, these sand dollars, sea urchins, snails, clams, oysters, all kinds of animals, they gain this carbon uh, for building their shells primarily from their diets. And they may be consuming other animals that contain carbon because we're all carbon-based life forms. But there's also things like algaes, you know, seaweeds and kelps that absorb carbon dioxide for their photosynthesis. So they are actually absorbing it in the gas form and turning it into a liquid or solid as part of their sequestration. And so when sand dollars eat these things like kelp, seaweed, and other organisms, they're able to take that carbon and use it to build their test, their shells, and that helps to store it as well. And so when the animal passes on, their shells might get pulverized into something more like sand or it might fossilize over time. But Either way, as long as part of the shell remains, that carbon is still stored. So it is sequestered away out of the cycle that carbon normally goes through. The reason why carbon sequestration is important is because it helps protect our climate. You know, of course, we're currently trying to reduce how much carbon dioxide there is in the environment. And so things that help sequester carbon and remove it from these cycles are actually helping to mitigate the climate change that we're trying to prevent. So... While sand dollars aren't a huge part of that, they are still an organism that impacts the amount of carbon that's available in these cycles and, you know, props where props are due. They also serve as predators to small organisms on the seafloor and prey to other species like sea stars and fish. And I'll expand a little bit more on the predation part when we get into their economic value. Word. I'm deleting that. Good. <laughs> so for social value, I think a lot of this goes without saying, but they have a huge impact on human art and design, as many things have been inspired by these organisms. In particular, who hasn't passed through a store in the summertime that is selling coastal decor or dining ware that has sand dollars featured somewhere on them? Obviously, there is a, an absolute obsession with these animals, or at least their tests, their shells, in these kinds of artwork. I'm pretty sure I probably have sand dollars somewhere on our dinnerware, somewhere in our cabinets. I don't own a whole lot of coastal wear. I do like to buy things that are ocean-themed, and so I don't doubt somewhere in this house I have something that features a sand dollar on it just because they are like the quintessential beach aesthetic. Some stores may sell real sand dollar tests for decorations or craft projects. I've definitely walked through craft stores before and seen them for sale. And of course, many people who live where sand dollars are native may be able to collect their shells and, you know, either keep them as mementos or some people might sell them. But it is worth noting that it can be illegal to remove shells from certain beaches, and that includes sand dollar tests. So visitors to beaches should always check to see whether local or state laws are being enforced for collecting these kinds of items. I know that when we lived in Monterey, because it is a protected sanctuary, there were laws against certain kinds of collection. Speaking of Monterey, when we lived in Monterey, California, I used to go visit a nearby beach where we lived, and on occasion I would actually find a live sand dollar washed up on the beach. So let's go ahead and talk about the etiquette of live sand dollars and putting them back. So for starters, we are not throwing the sand dollars into the water. Mm -hmm. 
We are not going to just drop them into the water, especially not close to the shore. Okay. We are going to gently wade out into the water and gently place them on the ground. Got or it. The sandy sea floor. That is, <laughs> and you and you want to wade as far to, as far as you can. Obviously, people of differing heights may be able to wade safely further than others. Your tallest friend would be the preferable person to take this out because the further away from the coast you can get them, the less likely they are to be washed back up by the current. But that is that is the goal is to just gently walk out as far as possible into the water and place them nicely onto the sandy floor. Nothing else. All right. So when you have your extremely tall friend walk them back into the water, obviously they've washed in from somewhere. So is there any risk of your friend potentially stepping on these things, like where they originally came from and damaging other ones? I mean, I guess it's possible. It depends on how shallow the water is for how long. Like, if the water maintains a, a shallowness, like let's say it stays up to your weight for like 50 feet out, then yeah, you definitely run the risk of potentially stumbling into like a little sand dollar garden somewhere. But if we're talking like, you know, from where the the water breaks onto the shore and let's say like 10 to 12 feet out, it is unlikely that they're going to be there. While that is within their depth, it can be dangerous for them to be too f close to the shore for the very risk of the tide and the current pushing them on and stranding them like that. So while it's possible, it's unlikely. I mean, something that a person can definitely do is just very, very gently shuffle their feet. And if they start to feel you know, things that aren't sand, like sand dollars and other organisms, and they can absolutely stop, place it, and walk away. But for the most part, you know, I imagine most people aren't wading out super deep into these waters, and so it should be fine. If they do feel them with their feet, what are they going to feel exactly? Did we talk about the posturing of these sand dollars? <laughs> so uh, this was something I was going to kind of cover, is in my experience, so... When they're alive, they're covered in, like I mentioned, the spines, the cilia, and their tube feet. It The, the texture of them is kind of like a stiff velvet. Like, if, if, if somebody took the sand dollars, but they were a soft velvet, but then put them in the wash with too much detergent and air-dried them without putting them in the dryer with, like, a softener or something. Like, if they just literally just put them in the wash, too much detergent, and then air dried them. It's like that kind of like a stiffness, like where it's not hard, but it's firmer than it would be if you had just put it in the dryer with some softener. I feel like I have been in some thrift stores with some like old 70s, like three piece suits that were probably made out of old <laughs> sand dollars. <laughs> like it's not leather, it's sand dollar skin suits. Mm, yeah, that's, that's a really weird visual. Thank you. <laughs> Oh, so yeah, that was, I mean, that that was something interesting was, I mean, it didn't happen frequently. I would definitely say like during the less than a year that I was there, at least at Monterey, I probably found like, you know, six or seven live sand dollars on the beach when we went walking on the beach and would put them back into the water. But did you say that they stand vertically? They can, yes. That That is something that they do is they, they sit vertically in, in the sand sometimes. Okay. Had you had you touched on that already? No. Were you going to? No. Okay. But we can bring it up. So, the posturing as we talked about. What, what I was trying to get at, um, though it's important to know that they're kind of like uh, a velvety, a hard velvet, um, was that most people find sand dollars and they're laying flat. So you look down and you see this circular... Disc. Disc. Uh, <laughs> you see the circular disc. It's a little bit redundant. Um, you is. see this. You see this disc on the ground. But in the water, in these communities of sand dollars, they're actually mostly standing on edge. Yeah, they're propped up on their sides. They're propped up on their sides. Um, and uh, I, I commented earlier, it's kind of like a Stargate. But um, <laughs> obviously nothing is walking through these sand dollars except for grains of sand. So they're not being transported to other galaxies. I mean, they're going somewhere. <laughs> Just not where they expect. Yeah. Yeah, it is really cool. So if, if, if you're able to look up pictures of it, you can find pictures of sand dollars if you look them up or even just videos, too. 
And if you are able to visit aquariums, I don't know how many East Coast aquariums have them. I know that when I was in Monterey, that the Monterey Bay Aquarium in their sandy seafloor exhibit does have a small sand dollar habitat with some moon snails in it. And I'm sure that some of the other West Coast aquariums might have it. So there's like the Birch Aquarium. There's the Aquarium of the Pacific. There's the Oregon Aquarium. The Seattle Aquarium. There's one more down south. I always forget what it's called. The Aquarium of the Pacific. That's the other one. There's the Aquarium of the Bay. That's San Francisco. And then there's the Aquarium of the Pacific. I always get those two mixed up in my head. But they may or may not have sand dollar habitats as well for this particular species. So it's worth seeing. They're really cool. And it's not what you expect because if you've only ever seen sand dollars on the beach and have never seen a live sand dollar or see, see, seen them in their natural habitat propped up in the sand catching food in the currents of the water, it's very different than what you expect them to live as when you see just the shell on the, uh, on the beach. So moving on from social value into economic, obviously a little bit of the social value was cover does cover economics because we buy and sell their shells and we also use them in artwork and things like that. So all of these things hold value in human cultures, but they are also valuable as food, but not to us. So like I said, they have a couple of different predators and one of the predators that they have is the California sheephead which is a very large species of wrasse. In fact, I think along the Pacific coast, it might be the largest wrasse, but I could be wrong. So it's this large species of wrasse that lives along the southern half of the Sand Dollars Range from Monterey Bay down to the Gulf of California in Mexico. The California sheephead are valued for their size by anglers and sports fishers. And so a lot of these people like to catch these animals because they are so large. And so any animal that helps support this fish, of course, helps support the fisheries and anglers that want to capture them. The California sheephead is also very important to the health of kelp forests, which help support other fisheries and tourism. So that's another way that sand dollars help to support things, although it's not a direct support. It's like an indirect support kind of thing. And then both sand dollars and the sheephead are valued in aquariums as well. So these are some of the different economic values that these things have. Okay. So California sheepheads eat sand dollars. Yes. Sand dollars exist in kind of communities on the sandy floor. Yep. They stand on their edge most of the time. Yep. So is the California sheephead coming down and scooping them up, dragging its jaw across the ground, or is it more of like a bobbing for apples situation? It's more of a, I, I think it's more of a bobbing for apple situation based on what I've seen of California sheephead behavior in when they eat sea urchins. Um, they don't like root around on the ground or anything like that. Like they go and they pluck their food and they come up and eat it. They'll crush the shell and eat the meat and stuff like that. Um, and especially if the sand dollars go to hide in the sand. The California sheephead doesn't have the ability to detect things hiding under the sand the way like a shark or a ray would. So once the sand dollars are under the sand, it would be hard for them to find in general. But if they are laying flat, that's also very hard to get to. And no animal wants to waste energy. It doesn't have to. So if it comes across some sand dollars and they're all propped up trying to catch food in the current, that is easy to, to come down, pluck up with their little tusk teeth and munch into versus the struggle of trying to scoop one up, getting sand in your mouth potentially uh, to eat what isn't a very meaty or high energy animal. So in in my head, they're eating them when they're propped up. That makes the most sense. So if they're, they're not a very meaty animal, do we know why the California sheep head eats them? So they actually specialize in eating shellfish. They have a very powerful jaw and some, like I mentioned before, some tusked teeth. And so they are actually designed to munch through shells. They're actually, uh, the reason why they help kelp forests is they actually help eat sea urchins, which eat the kelp. And so you don't want a lot of the sea urchins. So eating the sea urchins means more kelp for everybody else. Now, while these things aren't meaty, there are a lot of them in a space sometimes. So you might come across like a space that might have you know, a few dozen to hundreds of sand dollars. So while one sand dollar might not be satisfying, much like one chip isn't very satisfying, 
if you eat a whole bag of chips, or in this case, a whole little like collection of sand dollars, you might get some pretty good uh, nutrition out of it. Now, don't get me wrong. These are definitely not the thickest sand dollars. These are actually pretty thin. There are some like there's a reason why sea biscuit and sea cake is the nickname of some of these sand dollars is some of them are kind of like thicker biscuits, but they're not they're not quite the roundness that a sea urchin is, but they are thick. You know, sea cakes, sea cakes. It's like these guys are like tortillas and like the other thicker ones are like not like a non bread, like that thicker, puffier bread. So if you think about how satisfying a lone tortilla is versus eating like a piece of non bread or a little like loaf of non bread, like that's pretty significant. So so sand dollars obviously use like unleavened uh, sand as opposed to some of these other things. (laughs) There's no yeast involved. (laughs) (laughs) there's no yeast involved in the creation of sand dollars no sea yeast no sea yeast Uh, i shouldn't say that there i do believe that there are yeast species that live in the ocean they're just not in these sand dollars apparently (laughs) they don't need two hours to rise (laughs) Uh, so for conservation uh this species has not been formally evaluated by the iucn or any other major conservation organization or agency It is thought that for the most part, the species as a whole is doing fine, though as with any species that has a very wide range like these ones do, it might be doing better in some areas than in other ones. They are threatened by unsustainable fishing techniques, particularly bottom trawling, which I've mentioned before again in the Red Octopus episode. So avoiding seafood that is caught via bottom trawling is one way to kind of help reduce the impact that this technique can have on ocean animals. Because the reason why it's so harmful is that it it's pretty indiscriminate in what it catches. It doesn't target one species well. It can target a species, but it's usually affecting dozens of others in the process. So any fishing technique that it requires harming multiple animals in order to catch one is typically going to be a bad thing to do. So just in general, um, things, a lot of forms of trawling can be very harmful. There is sustainable trawling, but bottom trawling as a whole usually does a lot of damage. So zero out of 10 would not recommend fish and other animals caught that way. So before we begin to wrap up this episode, did you have any questions or comments based on what we discussed? Uh, so I think that's something that we didn't touch on, and you, you touched on it briefly, but we didn't really go into it, was that you mentioned that there is a, uh, a petal pattern, a flower pattern on the shells yes. of sand dollars. That's what they're known for. Right. So why that pattern? What does that pattern do? Well, I don't think in this particular case the pattern has a specific advantage. What the pattern comes from is essentially its heritage as an echinoderm. So echinoderms have a very rare form of symmetry. Usually animals have bilateral symmetry, uh, radial symmetry, and in very rare cases, asymmetry. But for these guys, they have at some point in their life, or for some species throughout their entire life, they have pentasymmetry, or five-point symmetry. They, I, I'm pretty sure, I could be wrong, I probably am wrong, but as far as I know, they're the only group of animals that has this. This is specific to echinoderms. So whether it's sand dollars, sea urchins, sea stars, which don't always have five points, but most of them do. Um, this is a unique symmetry to them. So it's almost kind of something that is uh, left over from wherever this symmetry was introduced to their line. Because you see it in sea urchins. Um, and they are, like I mentioned before, part of the sea urchins. What is it? Um, they are part of the class that sea urchins belong to. So they all share this. As far as I know, the particular flower pattern... Like, it could be any pattern. That's The pattern itself is not what gives them any type of... It's not what gives them any kind of adaptive advantages. Got it. So maybe it's just branding. Maybe they just went, we really need a good logo. <laughs> and they just ran with it for how many millions of years? <laughs> oh my gosh, the kind of derms have been around, you know, 
for a very long time. This is one of those very ancient phylums of animals. Like they've been around for hundreds of millions of years. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. <laughs> uh, it's kind of like, so like Walmart's got their little like weird six point star. This is like their. No, I'm pretty sure that's the, the Star Wars like empire, like Imperial logo for, for Walmart. But uh, um, you, you need to get away from the memes. Mm, but do I? uh but but yeah it i mean it is iconic like when people think of sand dollars they specifically think typically of that flower pattern that's on the shell it's one of the most memorable parts of it now we did discuss this earlier when you were asking me questions about sand dollars this group of sand dollars does specifically lack the keyholes that you see in some of the species that we have on the east coast so the ones that have like those keyholes I associate those with like Florida okay, and like southern states. You're talking about the holes that are on the top of the. Well, actually, the holes go all the way through. So arguably, they're on the top and bottom. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that keyhole pattern. So they'll have like one on the bottom and then like two on each side. That is, I think they're actually called keyhole sand dollars. I'd have to double check. But yeah, those. I don't know how many types of sand dollars usually have those holes, but that is specific to certain types of sand dollars. This one, as you obviously see from the test that you have in your hand, doesn't have those holes. It just has the flower pattern. What do you think is stronger right now, uh, sand dollars or sand euros? <laughs> uh, I don't even want to bring up sand dinars. What would be an ocean barren bull equivalent? Like, I can't, I don't know. I'm trying to think of like. Sand pounds sterling. <laughs> is it a bull shark economy or is it a, uh, I don't know if there's anything like a sea bear or something bear like. I'm I'm drawing a blank. There's a water bear. I'm trying to be clever and witty. And there are ocean ones of it. And I guess you could. So is it a water bear or a bull shark economy? I guess. Might might whichever one it is of those might affect the strength of the sand dollar against a sand euro. I should have known you were going to bring that up. I mean, we didn't bring it up any other time during this conversation, so I had to get it in while I could. <laughs> oh. So, do you feel like you know a little bit more about sand dollars? Slightly. 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 Yep. <laughs> I'm apparently not a very good teacher. No, no, you're great. So so here's the thing about me. I've been around the block. I've seen a lot of things, and I've promptly forgotten them all. That's not great for your job. <laughs> I won't tell your boss. Good. I won't remember this conversation. <laughs> to be fair, I think that's bad for anybody's job. Unless your job is basically to forget things, I think it's generally bad for everybody to forget things very promptly man if my job was to forget things okay we're getting off topic um anyway i'm glad i'm not paid in sand dollars though having one is pretty cool as long as it's legally obtained thank you for that addendum yeah of course do you think when they're they're babies before they grow into their like full tests that they're sand coins sand cents sand cents sand nickels sand pennies like, if you find a, a young sand dollar that's really tiny, is it a sand penny? I mean, you opened up this can of worms. Answer me. So uh, all I'm thinking of right now is that in Arabic, the word for penny is karush. And it's also the word that you find used to describe sharks because it's a verb that means to gnash teeth or to bite. And so the same word for... Uh, it's, uh, uh, or Semek al Uh, now I've forgotten which one it is, but that's shark. <laughs> and then the word penny is just Kirsch and, uh, shark pennies, shark pennies. But now we're talking about sand pennies. And so I'm thinking <laughs> that Kirsch would be a good name, but they don't, I mean, they have some gnashing teeth, but they're very small. They do. The Aristotle's lantern. They do actually have little gnashers in their mouth. I think that's appropriate. Yeah. Aristotle's Kirsch. <laughs> I love it. Mm. 
All right. Well, cool. Well, so we're going to just go ahead and call that a wrap for this episode before we descend into any more nonsensical conversations that are off topic. So thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, Barry, I think, for your input. Thanks for having me. For this episode, I cite some information from the Monterey Bay Aquarium, Animal Diversity Web, and the San Francisco State University. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to my email, thenaturalist at thenaggingnaturalist.com. And you can also check out my website, thenaggingnaturalist.com. On social media, you can find me under The Nagging Naturalist for Facebook and Instagram. And on Twitter, my handle is nag underscore naturalist. You can leave me reviews on Apple Podcasts and podchaser.com to help support my podcast. If you love learning about wildlife and don't want to wait for another episode, check out some of these other wildlife podcasts. All Creatures Podcast, CritterCast, The Wildlife, Just the Zoo of Us, Animals to the Max, Varmints, Amazing Wildlife Podcast, The Casual Birder, What Are You Podcast, The Songbirding Podcast, The Cicada Lounge, Life, Death, and Taxonomy, and Strange Animals Podcast. All of these are safe for work. There is also Keeper Chat, which is a great podcast, but it is definitely not safe for work. Love you, Flora and Fauna. <laughs> also, here are some really great podcasts you can check out that discuss other sciences or science in general and sometimes even have crossovers into wildlife. Petri Dish, Planthropology, Bald Scientist, Dear Grad Student, Better Than Human, Curiosity Cake, Mad Scientist, What Are You Gonna Do With That, Papa PhD, Breaking Math, Curiosity Killed the Rat, that's what I call science and the scientist podcast. And that's, that's scientist with two T's at the end of scientist. <laughs> Some of these podcasts are and aren't safe for work, mostly calling out Petri dish here. So be sure to double check with that if that's a concern. I'm also on a non-wildlife podcast called The Legend of Portalcast, which discusses the world of Avatar The Last Airbender and The Legend of Korra. Once again, thank you all so much for listening. I'll be back next week with another species from the sandy seafloor of the Monterey Bay Continental Shelf. So how do you feel about your podcast, A.B. Barry? Well, I don't want to say it was an immediate success, but I'm pretty sure that I'm going to give myself five stars. You're giving yourself a five-star review. Yeah, I'm going to sign in and go to iTunes, and I'm going to leave myself a five-star rating. And no. No? That's no. not how this works? That's not how this works. You're going to skew it. What if somebody hates me? I need to know that the world hates me. I mean, okay. But. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's fine. Wh whatever you want. <laughs> but no, I mean, it was fine. It was fun. And uh was it fun? Are you just being nice? Are you recording this to grill me right now? Is that what this, <laughs> is that what the real point of this is? I'm not trying to grill you. I'm just trying to make sure that you're not Well, if you're going to grill me, make sure to flip me over at appropriate times so I get those perfect grill marks. <laughs> Poke you with a thermometer, make sure you're uh the appropriate temperature. Yep, no one wants salmonella. Do do you have salmonella? Not if you cook me at the right temperature. <laughs> Shiga-producing E. coli? No more talking about my health history. <laughs> uh, okay. Do you think you'll come back? I mean, I live here, so <laughs> I will be back daily. But as far as on the podcast, we'll see. It'll all depend on my schedule and whether I feel like I have any added value, because there's no real reason for me to do this if it's not adding value to uh, your already glorious product. <laughs> glorious. Oh, Freya rubbing on a box. Now, I've always been surprised. I always feel like the cats are sometimes really loud during the podcast, and I'm pretty sure it picks it up, and then I listen to the recording, and somehow it managed to not. Freya, do you want to be on a podcast, too? Freya. No, come here. She ran away. She's like, no, I don't want to be part of this. Leave me out of your shenanigans. Oh, so, sand dollars. Crazy, am I right? It's so eccentric. But only in the West Coast. So, do you know if there's an actual, I don't know if they would actually have a term for sand dollars in an Arabic language, because I don't know if they actually have sand dollars. I mean, well, I guess we, I mentioned when we talked earlier, 
they have names for them. They're pansy shells in South Africa. But South Africa isn't necessarily North Africa, of course, which is where most of the Arab-speaking nations are. So, I mean, I imagine they might have a word for sea urchins. So if they don't have a word for sand dollar, can we call them squish sea urchins? (laughs) (laughs) Let me me see if they have anything for uh, sand dollars. The sea urchin that was crushed. And so let me see if I can find... I bet those of you who stuck around after the outro didn't expect this random nonsense, did you? I didn't expect this random nonsense. And just like sprung it on you like, Barry, tell me how you feel. Look up sea urchin. Sea urchin. A ragged child of the sea. (laughs) So a sea urchin is... I don't have the exact pronunciation here. This is... Achinus. My God, that bird next door. I wonder what kind of bird they even have that's just screeching all the time. In the Levant, a sea urchin is called a uh, tutia. Tutia? Tutia. Like like a toot, like a little a little poop. So in just very just ignores me some of the time when I say stuff like that. In Arabic, toot means uh, a any type of berry, not like my name. So they're but. calling them like sea berries? It's an odd thing to call something that looks like a squish disc. I don't know how Arabs <laughs> came up with these things, but yep. Berry's like, I didn't write this language. So did we say ahinus? Toot. Yes, there is that, but I have to look at this other one. Uh, you know, I'm going to call you Toot from now on, right? Achinus. Because you're my berry. You're my Toot. How would I say my berry? How uh, do I make Toot possessive? Tooty. Tooty? Oh! Kind of like Tooty Fruity? <laughs> I'm going to call you my Tooty from now on. <laughs> Who needs Habibi when I've got Tooty? Oh, that just made my night. Yeah, so uh, let me... It's okay if you can't find it. I don't want to... I mean, yeah, this is some very specialized language that I'm looking up right now. That's okay. I don't want to keep you from doing other things you might enjoy this evening. I have already taken you up about an hour of your time at this point, so... I'll just stay up indefinitely. Um... no. You're an old man. You can't do that. No. This is... Not I'm looking up. Uh, sand dollar Arabic. Let me see if I can find some. So because they kind of shuffle along the seafloor, could we call it like scoop matoot? Scoop just matoot. Scoop matoot. <laughs> it just scoots along. Little scooty tooty. I didn't even have to, like, drink anything to get to this point. This is just me. You're not so special. We're not all so special. (laughs) What do we search for? Sand dollar? It may seem like if there's anybody out there who is familiar with the, any of the Arabic languages, if you happen to know what the Arab word is for sand dollar, please feel free to let us know. If it's really just dollar rumli, which would literally mean sandy dollar, um... I'm going to be just slightly disappointed. Not entirely <laughs> disappointed, but uh, yeah, Delar Rumley uh, would be a literal translation of sand dollar into Arabic. But Well, I mean, one, obviously uh, Arabs didn't have dollars when they first probably saw sand dollars, assuming they have sand dollars along areas where Arab languages are spoken. I mean... Even if they call them sand, you know, insert word. I mean, I'm sure that a lot of names for them have existed at some point. Especially, I'm, I'm imagining that there might be sand dollars along North Africa at the very least. I don't know how many sand dollars may or may not exist within the Mediterranean. I guess I'd have to look that up. So I don't know if areas like the Levant or Saudi Arabia would have them. But because they're along Atlantic coasts, and because they are along at least some African coasts... 
it seems a pretty good assumption that they may exist along North African coastlines. And so maybe like some of the North African Arabic languages, the dialects that they have may or may not have specific terms for it. But if you're looking in places that are focused on like Egypt and the Levant and places like that, they may not have a native sand dollar. So it would be hard to find like a dialect term that they have specifically for this animal. Perhaps. And I mean, with North African countries, oftentimes due to a history of colonization, especially by the French in that area, you'll just have French loan words. So there might be, if the French has its own word for sand dollar, they might just use that. Um, I, I don't like know. Like a cognate? Well, yeah, like, uh, so, I mean, I'm not super familiar with Like the in North Spanish African when they dialect. told us that television was televisión or hamburger was hamburguesa, like those kinds of loan words. Yeah, like, for instance, uh, in Arabic, they use the word asanser, which is a French word. And now I'm blanking on whether it means uh, escalator or uh, elevator, but <laughs> it's something that takes you up and brings you down. Um, but it could be drugs. But yeah, that's uh, that's an example of like a French loan word that made its way into the Arabic language, and they uh, they still use it. And but that that's I think mainly in Lebanon. I don't know if they use that in. Uh, in Any other North Africans. Why are we talking about Arabic so much? Um, I asked a question. I was looking for an answer. You got really into it. I didn't expect your level of dedication in trying to find the Arabic Why word am I so people. dedicated? <laughs> like, it was just my passing curiosity. It became your brief obsession for like five minutes. <sighs> my obsession. <laughs> my curse. Okay, well. Uh, so, yeah. Let's, let's let these people go, because there might be people who are foolish enough to listen to this all the way through. No, don't leave us. <laughs> stay with us. Barry. What? I don't want to stay here. And I don't want to wait. Oh, God. <laughs> You've just ruined somebody's night with that theme song stuck in their head for the rest of the evening. I'm going to be thinking about it as I read my book tonight. Thank you, Barry. You're welcome. All right, Phil. Well, for those of you who stuck around for this uh, arbitrary tirade, thanks, I guess. <laughs> thanks for listening to this nonsense. Hope you guys enjoyed uh, Barry's appearance. I don't know if I'm going to let him on another episode or not after this, but... I wouldn't. <laughs> uh, thanks for listening in. We'll see you guys next time. Bye-bye.